Welcome to Step Into Magic, your weekly online radio show on how to develop your psychic ability, deepen your spirituality, and find your own true purpose. Presented by acclaimed medical intuitive, Josephine Lang. This broadcast is a part of the Wisdom and Intuition Network. And this is Anthony Taylor, your host, and on behalf of Josephine, I'll be taking your calls and questions. This week's topic is The Art of Letting Go, How to Move from Loss to Joy. For anyone new to our show, Josephine has been a clairvoyant healer for more than 25 years. During that time, she's helped thousands of people from around the world to heal from hard to diagnose and chronic health issues. She's also been a teacher and spiritual mentor for hundreds of people who treasure her insights, courage, and love. Thank you, Tony, and hello, everyone. Tonight, we're going to be talking about grief. And the reason that we need to do this is because grief is one of those things that can really hold us back on our spiritual path. It can also prevent us from pursuing our purpose in life, too. Our hearts do get broken, but we can learn how to maneuver those turbulent waters and mend ourselves in order to move on. We can use our psychic ability to help us heal us as well, heal ourselves as well. And when we use our inner guidance like that, we can reconnect and we can find the road back to our joy. Our loved ones that have passed on, they don't want us to be sad. They want us to live our lives and to enjoy ourselves. So tonight we're going to be discussing some tried and trusted techniques for moving through and letting go of the holding patterns that can accompany unresolved grief so that we can step into the flow of life once more. But before I go into this topic any further, I always like to begin our show with our spiritual agreement. And this was a gift from my friend and mentor, Jana Massey, and I ask that you all please join me in making this agreement tonight. It goes like this. Together we acknowledge that everything that we think, that we say, and that we do at this time will be of the highest good, and together we ask for truth, the understanding of that truth, and the wisdom to use it in our lives. Can you all agree? I do. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, everyone. Josephine, uh, we received um, a message from Ina that came in at the very end of the last show. I didn't have a chance to, to read it out. And perhaps everyone will remember that uh, last week you were talking about the communication that you had with George Washington. Oh, yes. Well, uh, Ina wrote in to say that should, any, uh, should someone wish to know more about George Washington and the Founding Fathers, many of them true mystics, read Edith Ellis's autobiography of George Washington. So thank you very much for that recommendation, Ina. Thank you, Ina. And uh, we also received a really lovely message from a listener in Paso Robles. And uh, she wrote, Dear Josephine, I loved last week's program on near-death experiences. They tell us clearly that we are eternal spiritual beings. Hearing you tell about your brother's girlfriend and about your friend's father, whose life changed completely after his death, was so inspiring. I know that I can never get enough of near-death experience stories. They are healing to the part of us that feels vulnerable and limited. Every story makes us stronger and more able to live with courage and joy. I wonder if your listeners have near-death experience stories to share. With blessings, Lee. 
Thank you so much, Lee. And I do hope that people will call in with their near-death experience stories because, as you say, they really help us to um, grapple with these feelings that we have, and they really do do heal a part of us that that feels very, as you say, vulnerable and limited. So thank you so much for that lovely message. Thank you, Lee. Uh, We also received a wonderful message from a listener in Northern California. And uh, they wrote, I don't know how you make a show about death fun, but it was great. Bravo, bravo, love you. Great show. Love, Anna. (laughs) Thank you, Anna. And uh, I'll just squeeze in one more. We had a lovely message of support from a listener from Brooklyn. And she wrote, I thoroughly enjoyed your insight on the show and often wondered what had happened to our loved ones. So thank you for that. I'm planning on going back to the archives and checking out the podcast. Best and blessings. Oh, thank you. And yes, you know, we did have a little problem with our archives. Uh, the Halloween show, which was really a delightful show on um, well, this whole topic of understanding that that we do live on in in our consciousness as we move into the death state, and really getting comfortable with that. And there were some beautiful stories that I shared on that show. That uh, unfortunately the uh, the link that we had on the website didn't operate correctly, so if you tried to listen to that show and weren't able to, the link has now been fixed. <laughs> so thanks very much for bringing it to our attention. All right. So um, I'd like to start off with a little story that's a very, very famous story, and it's the mustard seed story, and this comes out of India. And there's a, the story goes where there's a woman who has is just bereft because her child has died. And she comes to the spiritual leader of their community and she says to him, you know, you must bring life back to my child. You absolutely must. And he says, I will. I will do that for you. But first, you have to bring me a single mustard seed from the home of a family that has not been touched by grief. And so she goes around to every home in the village to see if she can't find a family that has, everybody had mustard, but and everybody had mustard seed, but nobody had had an experience where they hadn't suffered dearly from grief, from the loss of a loved one. And so she was unable to bring the mustard seed to the spiritual teacher. And in that exploration of finding out about how we all go through this experience, she was able to help heal her own feelings of grief and was able to understand that there are times where we do have to let go and uh, acknowledge and accept that death is a part of all of our lives. And though it's a difficult experience, we, we do all experience loss. And it's not just death, too. It can be all kinds of loss. You know, divorce is a huge loss, and we don't often acknowledge that in our culture. We might give someone some time off of work for a a death in the family, but we rarely give them time off of work for a divorce. And we don't want to hear their feelings about it. We don't want them expressing themselves. So we really have a, a difficult relationship in our culture with grief and with loss. And sometimes it could be a loss of a job, for that matter, where we might even lose our sense of purpose or our status or, you know, I you have feelings like I'm just a nobody and what's the deal, how come, you know, why did this happen to me, those kinds of feelings. There are even days where we, we are so, you know, bereft that we don't even want to get out of bed for whatever reason, whatever loss that we might have had. Homes can be lost, fires, floods, foreclosures. 
We had a friend who uh, had a home right on the coast in the island of Kauai when Hurricane Iwa came through. And all of her, everything, her whole home, there was nothing but just rocks left where her, where three houses had been right on the shore. And she couldn't believe it. She happened to have been, it was over Thanksgiving, and she happened to have been visiting on the mainland, visiting her family. And when she, when she came back, every single thing that she'd had was gone. So um, I remember her saying that what she missed most of all were her Joni Mitchell records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's true. You know, there are these things. We have some friends who lost their home in a fire, and, you know, that, that was a string of beads that the woman had, of rock beads that she just loved so much. And, you know, just, you know, sometimes they were elated over the freedom from it, and then other times they were just mired in the loss of it. And childhood is another time when we experience loss upon loss. You know, our mother's devoted attention when we're an infant fades as, thing, as we get older and more independent and she gets back to being busy again. And the presence of the father, often he is having to go off to work all day and we lose that time with that uh, parent. Or we have a loss of innocence or loss of our beliefs. Like you were mentioning the other day, Father Christmas, Tony, or, or the Easter Bunny even. I know my mom believed in the Easter Bunny for many years. <laughs> no, I never had the Easter Bunny. <laughs> and then, poof, that was gone, you know. And we can also lose our trust in others in childhood, depending on the experiences, you know. Um, we can also lose our trust in our parent. You know, we think of our parents as being ideal when we're very young. And uh, oftentimes we begin to see them for the humans that they are as we get older. Another example of that would be with gurus or with the clergy or even, uh, you know, governmental leaders like presidents and things. Sometimes we come in with a, a sense of real trust and then we feel betrayal and loss with that. So loss is one of those many faceted things and we do need to grieve them all and it's not just death, although I think death is the one that affects us the most deeply, most often with grief. Mm. Well, as you're talking about all these other areas of loss, Josephine, I'm thinking a little bit about physical loss. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the passing decades, you know, what, what I may have lost already, what I've got to look forward to. And, you know, there's the loss of mobility. I mean, it could be an accident or sure. getting older, an eyesight. Yeah. You know, I'm just noticing now that, you know, uh, in, in dark light, I have to get a pair of reading glasses out. Yes. And, you know, the loss of memory, vitality, looks. Oh, yeah. And, of course, there's that big one, there's loss of hair. Oh, dear. <laughs> Not say too much about that. <laughs> but yes, it's true. And I mean, we can work to try to help hold on to some of these things, like our eyesight with doing our eye exercises and, and whatnot. But yeah, there is that inevitable, you know, we round the bend, you know, as as Frank said, you know, oh, 55, you've passed the speed limit, you know. <laughs> Time it to is start. a sign that we're moving so closer towards our death. Yes, it is. And it's a natural arc, isn't mm-hmm. it? And we rise and then we come back down again. Yeah. So, yes, uh, the pain of grief, especially, you know, with death, it can be a very turbulent time. It can be shocking. We can be often in disbelief. We can experience confusion or feelings of being overwhelmed. It's certainly extremely painful. Sometimes we find ourselves completely disorganized and wandering, you know, from one room to another. What was I here for? What was I doing? You know, the appetite can go off. We can have difficulty sleeping or concentrating. And, you know, that's just 
the, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's all those other deep feelings of guilt or remorse or anger. Or, you know, we get tightness in our chest, in our heart area, or in our throat because there's so much that we need to talk about that it's hard for us to talk about. And we really do. I think that's one of the things that we can do when we are helping our friends and ourselves through grief is to try to get that throat chakra moving, to try to get the words to flow and to come out, even if they're, you know, not proper or politically incorrect words. You know, we need to let those words flow. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've been going through grief, and I'm sure this is a very common experience, is we can find ourselves crying at really unexpected times, like there you are in the grocery store or in the middle of a class, and here come the tears, you know. And we can get tired a lot of the time. We can really feel exhausted. And then there's all that, you know, anger with God. How could this happen, you know, or or feeling guilty over the death ourselves. If only I had done this or any number of other if-onlys. But as well, one of the things that's quite common in the brief experience is sensing the other, the loved one's presence after they've passed away. We might hear their voice or see their face. I know shortly after my dad passed away, his favorite holiday was the 4th of July, and Frank and I went down to Santa Maria for some reason. I can't remember exactly what we were down there for, but... They have fireworks stands there, and we were at a fireworks stand, and suddenly I saw my dad, and he was turning away. It just, you know, I caught him like a side view as he was turning away to walk to his car. And he had a nice pack of fireworks, and it, of course, happened to be another older gentleman, but there was that moment there where it was like, oh my God, that's my dad. And then, just like a half an hour later, we go into the bank for something, and, and, there was a free coffee and cookie sort of area there, and Frank and I were standing over by the teller line. And and here comes a man in with his, apparently his perhaps his mature daughter, and he was an older gentleman as well. And the way he looked, the way his body moved, the way he stirred the, you know, powdered cream material into the coffee cup, it was like, oh my gosh, here he is again. And it's really quite something how that can happen. And we have this one friend who passed away on uh, Halloween, or I think it was actually All Saints Day, some years ago, probably 10 years ago now. And his beloved wife was naturally completely distraught over his passing. And a a few months later, she had finally agreed to come out to dinner at at a friend's house, a mutual friend's home. And they had finished eating, and she was walking her plate into the kitchen. And and in their dining room, they had their library shelves, their bookshelves. And as she was walking past the books, one of the books literally moved itself off the shelf and fell on the floor right at her feet as she was carrying her plate to the kitchen and surprised her, and she took a step back, and it happened to have been his book that he had lent those friends. Mm. And it was, we all felt, his way of reaching out to let her know that he was still with her. Where would people go? We're all, spirit is around us all the time. And so he was still there, and he he made that extra effort to move material in this world so that we could recognize and see that he was still with us. It was a beautiful occurrence, really. And those kinds of experiences, when we have them, like me seeing my dad or our friend seeing, you know, the book of her husband come off the shelf, they give us hope and they really help us to lift ourselves up out of that 
as Lisa, that vulnerable and limited place, it really helps us to know that, that love is eternal. It does go on and, and that they are still present with us. On that subject, Josephine, I've had uh, dreams, you know, with people that have, have died oh. uh, and then seen them, you know, immediately in the dream that they, they've still still been around. But I've also had dreams where someone has died in the dream oh. and that I've been overcome uh, with, dream, with, um, with grief yeah. you know, in, in the dream. And in one dream, I remember, I accidentally killed somebody oh. and I was overwhelmed with this sense of this is forever and I can't go back now. And oh. the sense that, you know, that, that in the dream, you know, there was no turning back. Wow. Isn't that something? I don't know what you make of that. Well, you know, those, those that would be the feeling that we would have if it had happened in real life. And what an interesting dream image. You know, I would really want to know what the full context of, the, of your life was at that time. Mm-hmm. What was going on and what might have been similar in that in that dream world to your waking life to kind of get an understanding as to what that yeah, might have been Yeah, the feeling about. that I had lost something that I couldn't have back. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And that it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes we can have those kinds of dreams like that of having lost something when we go through big life changes and life stages like, for instance, when we go from being a single person to being married or from being uh, just married to being a father or a mother. There are those are some pretty profound changes. Not to say that that's what happened at the time you had this dream, but it does sort of feel like a change has happened that we can never reverse. We can never take it away, and that there is a part of a there is a loss there. There's a loss of our our maidenhood or our free and easy times or whatever, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it's a very good thing because you know, as yes. you say that, you know, some doors have to close in order for other doors to open. Absolutely. But we still have to have the feeling of. You know, we can still be caught up emotionally yeah. in the old thing, and it can be painful to let it go. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I'd like to talk just a little bit about sadness and depression. I do feel that there is a difference between the two. I've heard it said, and I think it's a very good description for depression, that depression is like an emergency break for the soul. And I feel that depression is different from sadness in that when we are in that state of depression, it's because we are repressing our feelings. We are not allowing them to come up. And we tend to numb the pain in some way or another. And there are many, many ways that we do this. We might do it through food or through alcohol or television or work, you know, the workaholic. Or, or even, I think, sometimes with a, the perpetual and continual adrenaline high. I feel that these kinds of behaviors are often that we're trying to stuff down or prevent feeling something that we really need to feel. And maybe you can show our slide then, Tony, if you would. I love this quote. It's by Les Brown, who is an inspirational speaker, and he is so much fun. And one of the things that I heard him say one time in one of his talks was, if you find yourself in hell, keep moving. And what happens when we numb the pain is we don't keep moving. We stop it there. We are getting stuck. We are preventing ourselves from moving ahead. And I think that's because we're afraid to feel in case it opens the floodgates. And what's the feeling that comes with us? Like, oh, if I get started, I will never stop. And truly, I mean, it does feel that way, but we do actually work through it. I mean, it may take weeks. It may take months. It may even take years. But we do get through it. We do move through it. And um, 
unfortunately, culturally, we're not really encouraged to do that. We're not encouraged to grieve. We're not encouraged to feel our feelings. We don't want to hear about the anger over the divorce in the, you know, uh, coffee break room at work. You know, we don't we don't encourage people to talk about it, to move through it, to work with it. We want to stuff grief. We want to stop it. You know, there's all sorts of things that we hear, like, there, there, it's okay, or, oh, please don't cry, please don't cry, here, have a tissue, you know. And what happens when we have a tissue or hand somebody a hanky is we want them to blow their nose and dry their tears and stop crying. And unfortunately, you know, that that business of sort of being, you know, culturally condoned not to grieve, I think that that might have to do with, and who knows, you know, where this came from, but it might have to have to do with the the needs of the group versus the needs of the individual, you know, being beholden to the needs of the tribe to keep producing, to take care of the kids or do whatever needs to be done. And there are times, certainly, where we do need to do that. We need to take care of things that need to be done. But there are also times where we need to take care of ourselves. So those sayings that we have in our culture, like, you know, what's done is done and no sense in crying over spilt spilt milk, you know, those are all parts of the ways that we dampen down our need to grieve. We turn it off. We encourage it culturally to stop, to be stuck, to not move ahead. And, you know, I didn't see my dad cry, not once, until my mom passed away, and he was nearly 60 at the time. And I did get to see him cry more in his 80s after he'd had a heart surgery. And in a way, that makes sense. You know, his heart had been blocked and stopped. He had um, some of the arteries had become clogged. And so he had, uh, I think it was the triple bypass surgery. And then those arteries were opened again. And the flow of blood and joy and circulation could move through his body more easily. And I think that that's what joy is about. Joy is about flow. It's about getting that blood to move. And um, part of the experience of joy is that we need to allow ourselves to grieve what we need to grieve over. Because if we don't grieve, if we don't get it out, then we can't really raise to those heights of joy. We need to actually visit the valleys in order to climb the mountains. So my dad passed in 2003, and he was the third of, to, uh, of a huge, we had a, just an amazing run of deaths in 2003 and 2004. Frank and I experienced 18 different deaths in 24 months. And, and my dad was the second of the big three that all happened within three or four weeks of each other in January and February of that year. The first was my darling nutmeg. She was my, you know, we all have cats that we love and then there are favorite, favorite cats. And, she was my precious child and just a love. And um, she was struck by a car and broke her neck and died in my arms. And it was perhaps one of the saddest experiences I've ever had in my whole life. Fortunately, there were some good friends with me right when it occurred. But, oh, my God, it just broke my heart wide open. And then came my dad, and he died of this massive stroke. And then just two weeks after that, my Duchess, my darling horse, who I'd had since I was, you know, 13. She was my mother, my sister, my daughter. You know, she was this was this huge interspecies relationship. And she just plain old died of old age. I mean, she really hung in there. She lived nearly twice as long the average age of a horse. 
And then, you know, seizures and things took over and she just had to go. And so I really feel like Frank and I, with those 18 deaths in 24 months, starting with those big ones, that we really went through like a college course in death. I mean, like death 101. And we cried buckets full of tears. And it was interesting because both Frank and I would have really different reactions. You know, there would be some that I would think that Frank would be much more upset about, and he wasn't that upset about, but I would be just torn up. And the same thing would happen with me where, you know, uh, he would be torn up and I would be like, well, yeah, okay. And it really made me realize that we all have very varied needs when we go through death. And... um one of the things that's really important for us to do when people are going through uh, grief is to stay in contact with them, to, to just be yourself, you know, to help out with practical matters wherever you can, take care of the kids or the dogs or the pets or the garden or whatever. And then I think it's really important to cut us all some slack when we're going through grief because people wind up doing very strange things when they're in grief. I can remember one of my aunts when she was cleaning up the house that my grandparents had lived in. There was my grandfather's you know, hat that he wore every day that was such a symbol of him to me. And I saw her just push it down in the garbage and dump a bunch of crud on it. I was like, ow! So we might not really behave in the same way that people do, but they have to do what they have to do. And we have to let them do what they have to do. And it's important for us not to rush it, not to rush grief, but to just let them go through it and, you know, crush the hat if they need to. And give them a hug and say, I'm sorry. You know, that's so much better than saying, oh, you'll feel better soon or let's get you another dog or whatever. You know, just, I'm sorry. And just let them go through it. Because we are really changed. We really do go through a change when we go through death and, and we become very vulnerable and we just have to have to be with it. Thank you so much for that, Josephine. We actually have a caller on the line. At the oh, moment. very good. How nice. Okay. Hello. 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 Hi, is this Frank? Yes, this is. And oh. I just wanted to uh, chime in on oh, great. Uh, on my take on the on the grief situation in that um, when I was going through a lot of grief, I um, I literally felt off balance. I mean, yeah. just in, in, in walking and in doing actions. So, you know, I noticed I was clumsier and that sometimes... Um, I would just feel a, a huge void, and that's, I think, a common expression people have. There's, just, there's this emptiness. And so I was trying to think of really, you know, what is this? Because it really is a, a – it was something that was physical. It wasn't just something that was psychological. And um, it brought me to think of, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance, where, you know, we – we resonate with people and our friends and our loved ones and our family. And, you know, that's why sometimes people will think, oh, that's my mom on the phone or something happened to my uncle or something because we're connected on, um, on a different, on a, in a way we can't see, but we're deeply connected with the people who we love and who are, uh, and who are in our families. And so my, hit was that when these people pass on, their energy, their energy field, their resonance is, is gone. It's just kind of like it's unplugged. And where mine was um, relating with theirs, you're kind of, you know, bouncing a signal back and forth 
all of a sudden that signal goes out and there's nothing there. Oh, and like so echolocation. I've, yeah, so it's it, very much like that. And so then there's this hole where mm. my energy is, you know, going out to that point and it's just not being bounced back. And so um, I'm literally having to kind of reformat uh, my field to mm. get more balance, to... Um, to fill that, to fill that area up um, with something wow. else that's, that's I I love and appreciate and um, and it gives me that same kind of resonance. So anyway, wow. I thought I would share that. Oh, that is very profound, Frank. Thank you so much for calling that in. Oh, you're welcome. That's well, great. Have fun with the very very insightful. Thank you. We'll do. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. That was great. Yeah, it was, that was a very interesting theory. Isn't it a wonderful yeah. one? Yeah, beautiful. The resonance theory. I mean, I can certainly, you know, recall from my own experience of what you were saying before about how you're really not yourself and you can do and say things, which... It be very weird. <laughs> it's very, very confusing because you behave yeah. in ways which you don't recognize in yourself. And so oh, yeah. You know, you lose a part of yourself, you know, and, and that thing, yeah, it's not the same. It doesn't feel the same, you know, as Frank was talking about with that, that resonance. Something is, is missing. Yes. And something else comes in. Yes, and I've actually had the experience of having said something that's just so off the wall after, you know, my dad died in this one experience, and my sister-in-law said, you know, you said this. I was like, No. She was like, yes, you did. I was like, no way, I would never have said that. And then I kind of did remember, oh, yes, I guess I did. So we really can behave very differently because, like Frank said, you know, there's, there's this, we're just not, we're just literally off balance. We're just really not our whole self. And, you know, I'm so glad that death really kind of came out of the closet in the, I guess it was in the late 80s, and they kind of think of that decade of the 90s as having been the decade where we overcame the taboo of death because in my mom's and dad's time, death really was a taboo. I mean, we couldn't even talk about it. It was it was a huge subject that was not touchable. It, it was like a failure of modern medicine or something to die. And I was so grateful for the hospice movement coming out. And you know, hospice is wonderful. They have something like here in California, and I don't know if it's throughout the nation, but something like six months of free counseling to anybody who has ever had a loss at any time, and that's all of us. So basically you can get counseling for any loss that you've experienced, whether it was in childhood or adulthood or anything, at any time in your life. And they also have a really good uh, program for suicide bereavement, for support for that. And that can happen, like I said, any time after the death. Years and years later, you can still go in and get hospice. And that word, hospice, comes from the old French or Latin for hospitality, hospitum. And it means a shelter for travelers. And when you think about it, you know, when we are moving into our death or when we're grieving, grieving we are really kind of like a traveler in a new world. We're, we're moving through. And it also refers to the palliative care or the comfort care. Um, of the person who is dying. And so they'll come in and have, you know, people who will come and sing or sit by the dying and give the caregivers a little bit of a break so that they can get out and get some groceries or a breath of fresh air. And in the meanwhile, they're tending to the emotional and the spiritual needs of the terminally ill patients. And that, they do that usually in the patient's home, which is such a great thing. And I'm sure that many of you have heard, maybe you can show that next slide, Tony. That's the 
the five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross shares. And they are, the first one is denial, which is, I feel fine, this can't be happening to me, you know, not me. And then the second one is anger, why me, it's not fair, how can this happen, who's to blame? And the third one is bargaining, I'll do anything for just a few more years, you know, I'll give my whole life savings if you can just give me another week. And depression is the fourth one. I'm so sad, why should I bother with anything? I'm going to die soon, so what's the point? Or I missed my loved one, or why should I even go on? And then the last one, the fifth one, acceptance. It's, it's going to be okay. I, I can't fight it. I might as well prepare for it. And I think that those that was such a wonderful thing that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did to help us identify that in our psyche so that we can really realize the process that we tend to move through in our grieving. And, of course, everybody is different, and, and there are variations of all sorts, but that's kind of a general pattern that we can sort of expect and look toward. Yeah, I mean, because back then, because I can remember back then that the, the late 80s, death was not really talked about. Right. You, you had no, if you were grieving, you had no idea what was happening to you. Yeah. And then with the incidents of that book... Uh, you know, and identifying stages and things, at least gave you the feeling that, oh, so maybe what's happening to me is part of a natural process. Yeah. Rather than I'm just going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? Mm. Yeah, so then I also feel that we can, if we really work on ourselves and on our process and really do our grief work and really move through it, that we can actually move to a sixth stage, which is gratitude. And I know that's a big step, but I have noticed it in my own life so many times that I just wanted to share it. Like, for instance, with my mother's death. My mom died when I was just 19, and there were many years where I, I couldn't even think about it or talk about it or anything, but I finally, you know, did move through it and um, really came to terms with it. And I learned all sorts of new lessons. There, not only was I grateful that she was no longer in pain, that was one thing, of course, but the much bigger lesson for me was that I became my own mother. I really learned how to care for myself. And I'm so grateful for that. And all the other things, I'm so grateful for all of the many things that she taught me in life that have really served me well. So there's a lot that, that we come to as we move through the process. And then my grandmother's death, she died sometime after my mother, and she really took a big role in my young adulthood. And when she passed away, she actually wrote me a little letter, and she said, darling, you know, from whatever planet I'm on, I'll be helping you. <laughs> and it was such a sweet thing, and um, I really feel that she has helped me. There are so many times where I think, oh, Noni had a hand in this. And she's really become a tremendous spirit angel overseer for me. And I have a dear friend who's, uh, she told me this amazing story of when her dog died. A crow came to play with the dog's toys. The next morning she and her husband were on the veranda and, and they were just bereft over the loss of their dog. And then here comes this crow that starts playing with the dog's toys. And not only did it play with the toys for a little while, but it played with the toys all day. And then it was there the next day, and it was still playing with the toys in the same way that the dog would play with the toys. It would roll over the ball and kick it around. And and by the third day, they were all laughing so hard at the antics of this crow that, you know, they really knew that their dog's spirit lived on in some way or another. I mean, either the dog was in cahoots with the crow, or the dog became the crow, or who knows what, but... There's that that ability to, for us to see 
with experiences like that, that spirit does live on. And uh, so, you know, it's not just that we... We, you know, we just move into that that gratitude for how they have enriched our lives, and that really opens our hearts again. And maybe you can show that next slide, Tony. This is a wonderful quote by Hazrat Inyat Khan, and he says, "God breaks the heart again and again until it stays open." Which is so oh, incredible. It's so profound. It's so beautiful too. <laughs> And I think you can see that, really, that people who have experienced a lot of loss, if they stay with the feeling, it does make them more compassionate. Yes, it really does, doesn't it? Yeah. So, you know, that sadness, we feel that if we open up the floodgates, you know, if I get started with grieving, I'll never stop. You know, and like I said, could be weeks, could be months, could be years. But we do need to feel our losses, big and small, and there's lots of them. And going into the sadness is the way out of the depression. Uh, when we, you know, we feel like we're doing terrible when we're going through that. We feel, oh, my God, I'm ugly, I'm clumsy, I'm stupid, I can't function properly. But yet, interestingly enough, our friends are saying things like, oh, you look so much lighter, <laughs> you're looking better. And I'd like to give a homework assignment, and this is um, for anybody who is going through grief. I'd really love for you to get this one book called The Grief Recovery Handbook. It's by John James and Russell Friedman. And I found when we were going through Death 101 with all those 18 deaths, I mean, it was just one after another. We basically had a death a month, and it, it was just like, you know, constant pounding over the ages. It was just incredible. And one of the tools that really helped me, I found in this book, and it was to make a timeline of the relationship. So the year that the relationship started and then the year that the relationship ended. And then divide up all the little months or weeks or years or whatever on that timeline. And then above the line, you write what was good about the relationship. And then below the line, you write what was not so good about the relationship. And what I found that that did was it really helped to bring our loved ones off of the pedestal that we tend to put them on when they pass and brought it back into reality. And just that perspective helped me so much. I, I really, really appreciated that exercise for that. And then another book that a dear friend of mine who um, was suffering a tremendous loss with her husband shared with me, she said this was the best book for her, was C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. And this is a truly extraordinary book. I mean, he really describes what grief is like. And one of the things that he said is that when we're with people, like say at a party situation or something, our friends that we know that are trying to get us out and about, we get really angry with them if they don't talk about our loved one. And then he said we also get really angry with them if they do talk about our loved one. And basically that, to me, just sort of <laughs> summed up where I often was or have been in my grief in the past, is that nothing works, nothing is right. And to just understand that there's a time of period that, you know, period of time that we're going to be going through where things are just so uncomfortable and nothing is right. And then I'd also just like to mention loneliness. You know, that's one of the things that happens when we go into grief. Um, but like I was saying with some of those stories earlier, that the spirit is all around us. And, you know, we can see the messages if we allow ourselves to, like my friends did with the crow or, um, you know, of similar, similar situations like that. And then another thing for loneliness is to, and this is a big one, is to get out and help someone else. You know, it really makes us feel connected 
when we reach out and help somebody. And it can just be the neighbor. We can just go sweep their porch. It really doesn't matter what we do, just any little thing to help someone else. And it really makes us to, makes us feel better. It makes us feel more connected. And um, that's the interesting thing about service is that it makes us feel as good to serve as it does to be served. And that sort of ties in with one of the teachings that Neil Donald Walsh shares with his Conversations with God, where he says, you want to give to others what you want more of for yourself. And so when it comes to loneliness, if we can give somebody else our our attend time and attention, then that's what we wind up receiving in return. And then I have another tool about grief that I came across from, well, this is my good friend Susan shared this with me. She lost her son, and she had a four-step plan, and she said that for her to get through grief because she had very limited resources, and she had to just make do with what she had. And the first one was to be with people, to just get herself out and be with them, like it or not. The second one was to get a lot of exercise, and we all know how the you know the various brain chemicals, the endorphins, kick in when we get our exercise, and it does help us to feel better. And it puts that energy somewhere; it gets that energy moving. And then she said to spend time doing creative art, and I thought that was so profound because really, that if we can't express ourselves verbally or in other ways, at least we can get some art down and just you know get some color on the paper or or write a poem or whatever it is. And then she said that the other thing that she does is to see the spirit of the loved one living on in the other people that we have around us, those who remain with us. And I thought that was so profound because that really is a true thing that happens, our our loved ones do live on in those around us. And then I was speaking with a friend who uh, knew a woman who had lost her husband and she had such a difficult, difficult time trying to grapple with it. And this was, I think, in the in the mid early 90s, something like that, 1996 or something. And she traveled, decided to go to war-torn Africa, to Rwanda, where people had lost, had so many lives, just to learn, just to try to learn how people grappled with death and loss there. And she met this one woman who had lost six of her nine children. Can you imagine? I just think that's just so overwhelming. And she'd also lost her husband. And what they tended to do, those women in Rwanda, and what this woman did, was they would put on their very best clothes and then they would reenact the scene of having found their deceased, their loved one, where they had died. And they would have friends come and and perform in the play with them. And they would do that again and again until it had lost some of its... Uh, power, some of its emotional strength until it became more able to be grappled with. But just going through that experience again and again by playing roles with their friends, I thought that was such a uh, wonderfully creative way to really deal with grief and to move through it. And then, of course, there's the EFT tapping method, you know, the emotional freedom technique where you do the tapping on the meridian points to help loosen and move uh, blocked energy. And I understand that they did that in Bosnia after the war there and had to great effect. And so that's another tool and technique that we can use. For myself, I like to go underwater. There's something about when I'm really crying and really grieving to just go underwater and just feel the pressure of the water all over my body and to let my tears just become one with the water. That really helps me a lot. 
And a shower will do in a pinch. You know, we can really get some good crying in in the shower. And I think that when we take a shower or get underwater too, it really clears our aura. It really helps us to clear the energy fields around our bodies. Another one that I do that I really love is burying myself in the sand. And um, also in regards to tears, you know, from the psychic aspect, when we feel tears, that is an, uh, an opportunity for us to realize that our loved ones are very near us and that we are very tuned in. And it's an opportunity for us to really check in with them and that our, to realize that our, our love is not lost. We still love them and they still love us. And uh, I think that most often preventing or stopping our grief, you know, stops our lives. And our loved ones don't want that for us. It's like with C.S. Lewis where, you know, he said, you know, you'd want, you don't want them to talk or you do want them to talk. Either way, it's not right. All rules don't apply with grief. And whatever we feel, the opposite can be true. So one of my dear friends, Lillian, told me this amazing story about her son. And she, he had been a very happy guy in his life, and he always made her laugh. And then he died, and she was so, so sad that he had passed, and she was crying herself to sleep every night. And one night she was asleep, and she was awakened by a bright light at the foot of her bed. And she looked, and there standing beside her bed was her son, and he was so sad. And she said to him, why are you sad? You should be happy. You're in heaven. And then he faded away. And she thought about that, and she thought, what was that about? And really he was expressing his love for her with with his desire for her to love her life, to let go of her crying and her grief and her re-embracing life again. So, like I said, all rules are off. It can go either way. But our grief does bring us growth, and it opens us up to love so that, you know, we can be have our hearts open again. And, you know, like I was talking about last week with my darling horse, Duchess, how she visited me to say, you know, I'll be there for you when you pass over. And that really made me feel so much better, and I I really feel that that's true when we do get greeted by those on the other side. Maybe you can show that slide, Tony, if you don't mind. Certainly. This one says, when the heart weeps for what it has lost, the soul laughs for what it has found. It's Mm. a Sufi aphorism. Yes, I very much like that. Me too. So when my mom died, I took the call, and uh, the, I was help holding the receiver of the telephone up to my cheek, and that pain lodged itself in the muscles of my cheek, and it, it, it pinched, and they held. And it was some many ten years later, I think, when I finally worked through that in a really deep way that my face changed. I let go of the holding pattern. And there's another slide maybe that you can show, which is we are healed of a suffering only by experiencing it to the full. And that's Marcel Proust. Yes, well, from my uh, work as an Alexander Technique teacher, I can certainly say that that's very true. Often yeah. I work with people who've got stuck in a holding pattern and it's it's just grief that they've been unable to experience. Yes. But that's a huge topic. So <laughs> it is, but it's a wonderful topic. I love your Alexander work. And now, Josephine, there was something that I wanted to read out because oh, please do. I, I saw this the other day on the internet. It was on the Huffington Post, and I just read about it the day before oh. somewhere else. And uh, and I thought, as it relates to this subject, you might find it really interesting. 
And it goes like this. Sheila Marsh told staff at the Royal Albert Edward Infirmary in Wigan, that's in England, mm -hmm. she wanted to say a last goodbye to her horse, Bronwen, oh. whom she'd looked after for 25 years. Wow. They arranged for two of her horses to be brought to the hospital car park on Monday, and the 77-year-old grandmother was wheeled outside by nurses in her bed. Mm. After Mrs. Marsh gently called to Bronwen, the animal bent down gently and muzzled her cheek, with the moment captured in a touching photograph by hospital staff. Mrs. Marsh, a mother of two who used to work at Haydock Park Racecourse, died hours later on Monday night. Her daughter, Tina, 33, praised staff at the hospital for helping her mother achieve her final wish. Oh, you gave me the goosebumps with that one. <laughs> that is so sweet. Yes, it's a lovely story. Oh, how lovely. It's right. Yeah, so just another little few words on, on grieving then. You know, the there is that that uh, keening that people do, wailing. You know, and that's, we hear of that in Central Europe, and I've seen photographs of women who are wailing in Greece, you know, and, and just really letting themselves cut loose over the coffin and just cry and scream. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. And, you know, there was a wisdom in the Midwest that I experienced when I went back to visit my uncle, for, uh, Buck, a few years back. And uh, we drove, we took a little drive out at night to go get some ice cream at Dairy Queen or something like that. And, and we drove past the funeral parlor and he said, oh, the light is on. And when the light was on, that meant that there were mourners that were, you know, in there and during the viewing of the body. And one of the things that they would do is as people would come in to see the body, they would make the sound of crying. <laughs> so that it's easier for somebody to come in to look at the body and cry because we are so repressed about not just letting our tears come out. And it's important for us to let our tears come out. And I had a dear friend who years ago, so wisely, at our local Coalesce bookstore, the beautiful little chapel they have behind, she arranged a women's circle for us where we did a wailing, where we came in dressed in black and we wrote down something that we wanted to grieve on a piece of paper. And, and she went around the circle till we were all seated and, and knelt by our knees one at a time. And, and we all made the sound of crying and wailing. And that would allow the person who was being focused on by the, the, the woman who was the priestess for the ceremony, allowed them to just really cut loose and let those tears out. And I've since done wailings in my own women's circles, and they are remarkable. We can really get our grief out. And sometimes it's so funny that flip side between wailing and crying and laughing is so close to each other. Have you ever looked at somebody who's really crying hard and their shoulders are shaking and you wonder, are they crying or are they laughing? And sometimes they're doing both at the same time because it really changes us. It's really, so our, you know, our, our laughing and our crying and our laughing again, it can be a really, it can bring a lightning to our countenance. That's wonderful. Josephine, we do actually have a caller on the line. Oh, okay, let's do that. It's rather late. Yeah, no, I'd love to have that. And let's just show that slide real quick because that kind of ties in with this little story, which is by Robert Frost, which it says, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. And I think that's so true, how when we let our grief out, we never, we don't really realize, but there often is laughter on the other side. That's beautiful. Yes. Okay, then. Welcome. Hello, Hello. Oh, Hi. This is Amalia. Hi, Amalia. How are you? 
I'm, I'm good. I just want to participate because of this subject. Great. Yes, yes. Um, you know, um, I lost my first son, Sebastian, when he was almost three years old. Wow. And so now I can I can talk and basically uh, you know express what it helped me you know yeah. to come out without being crazy or going insane and, and one thing somebody told me he said talk to him you know he's in front of you talk to him beautiful you know does he want you sad ask him you know yeah. do you want me sad and crying. Yeah. And I did it. And I said, no, no, never. It will never, you know, my little son will never want me sad, you know, yeah. or my husband, you know, or the family. That, that was, you know, I kept wow. whenever, you know, I, I cry a lot. I, I did, yeah. you know, I, I suffer a lot and I went through anger and um, everything, you know. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't even talk about it. And, um, right. um so that was a big thing. The other thing that helped me a lot, it was that finding other women who went through the same thing. It was like a little club of women who lost their children in different circumstances. Yeah. I felt I could be totally open with them because uh, you became so vulnerable to people. Like anything, any word, it would just make you, you know, react and cry and you don't even know where it, it will come from, you know. It's uh, it's a very very tricky position to be in, you know. If they say how are you, it will make you cry. It's like you will think, right. why are they telling me how how I am? No, right. I, I'm I'm sick. I'm tired. I'm you know I'm I'm sad. I'm you know. It it's very difficult. Yeah. And uh, I think also for uh, people who you know, it's better not to say anything. Just like I'm very very sorry if they want to cry and tag you. And I think to just to say, like, I have no idea what you're going through. You know, yeah. If people say, like, I know exactly what you're going through because I just put my dog to sleep a week ago. Somebody told me that. It's just like they don't wow. know what to say and they, they hurt you more, you know? Yeah. But it's better not to say anything, not to give any advice that, you know. Yeah. And always, you know, if somebody brings you dinner or cookie or something, you know, it's very welcome, you know. Yeah. The other thing that helped me a lot it was um, a gardening. I just turned into gardening. I went maybe yeah. for two or three uh, therapy sessions with uh, a psychologist. I, I really didn't care, you know. And, yeah. and this is so big that nobody will help me, but I have to help myself. Right. And that that is the determination to live, you know, yeah. the determination and the time. Time is huge also. As yeah. time goes by, it, it helps. And uh, just letting go, you know. If you need to cry in the middle of uh, of the bus or the train, you do, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And also, uh, we did everything when he was diagnosed with a terminal disease, a genetic condition. We kept him home, and we didn't do any medicine. We didn't even go to the doctor, nothing. So we did everything that we need to do as human beings, as parents, uh, for over a year. So it was no guilt. It was never like, if I just, if I just. And I wish people just give themselves totally to, yeah. you know, this um, situation. And because yeah. I, I don't know how it will be if I will be saying, if I just. Because I, I, 
My soul was clean, my heart was clean, and that gave me strength of some sort. Um, the other thing was, uh, you know, um, uh, gardening, you know, um, just the sense of doing something, exercising, sweating, crying, clearing, uh, watering, and uh, just being, being busy. And, uh, and little by little, you know, I would talk with people that I knew, you know, um, yeah. I would talk about. It took like five years. And uh, but you come strong, as strong as you would come out from any you know deep deep problem. And for me, was clearly you know my lesson there was live every moment, live just now, this this moment. You know the sound of my mouth, just that. This is the only reality I have, and I can yeah. control my words. You know and uh, yeah, yeah. So oh, that, beautiful. That is, uh, Wow, Amalia, thank you for sharing. That is so deep and so profound and so true. Yeah, and, um, you know, I like to share another thing. It just happened a week ago. A very, very dear friend died in Seattle at 86 with uh, uterine cancer. And when another friend in common called me, uh, you know, I was shocked first. And then I cried for two days. I just cry and cry. I haven't talked to her in over a year, and... I felt guilt from having talked to her. Yeah. And her name was Esther. And at one point, I was in the shower and just crying and singing and, you know, asking forgiveness for Esther, from yeah. Esther. And, uh, and she came and she said, Malia, enough, she said. I don't want you suffering. I don't want anybody suffering for me. <laughs> You know, that, that, that's not what I preach. You know, I was a content, happy person, and I love my friends. I love you. I, I don't feel guilty, you know. Yeah. This, is, this is not about suffering, you know. Please, you know, have joy, have joy. And I swear to you, Josephine, I turned laughing. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm as if she was there, you know. Oh, that's great. So,
let it out. We do need to let it out. And then if you want to, you can journal what your feelings were while you were crying. And I like to ask myself, and this is the, the really sweet question where the, the wonderful transformation lies, is to ask, what are those thoughts beneath these tears? And see if you can't encourage yourself to let some more tears flow. And try this once or twice if you can this week. And see, maybe you can even do it every night if you can. And it will lighten you. You'll feel terrible while you're going through it, but you'll get through it. And like Amelia said, you know, you'll be more alive as you as a result when you reach the other side. And I loved what her friend Esther said. You know, enough. I don't want you suffering for me. Don't feel guilty. Have joy. And um, you know, then she wound up just laughing. It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching story. I'm so glad you called that in, Amalia. Thank you, darling. And you know, as we move through our grief, we set our burdens down, and this really lightens our load, and it makes our feet more willing to dance. And when we do our grief work, our reward is gratitude and joy. So in closing, I'd like to thank all of you so very much for giving me the gift of your time. And I'd like to finish with this little blessing, which is, as our gifts are given in love, they are received in love. And we honor their wise use and their increase for all concerned. Thank you so much for that, Josephine. As always, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you on the radio. And I trust that everyone listening has learned lots about the art of letting go, how to move from loss to joy. This has been show number 88-2.14. And if you've enjoyed the show, we really hope that you will tell your friends. We look forward to having all of you join us again next week when Josephine will be talking about life in a reincarnational reality. Tony and I wish you all insight, wisdom, and magic as you pursue the journey of inner knowing. And I hold you all in light and in love. Thank you so much for listening. This is Josephine Lang. Until next week, good night.
The moderator has left the conference.